Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. I am failing as a woman. I am failing as a feminist. I have passionate opinions about gender equality, but I worry that to freely accept the label of feminist would not be fair to good feminists. I'm a feminist, but I'm a rather bad one. Oh, so I call myself a bad feminist. Or at least I wrote an essay, and then I wrote a book called Bad Feminist, and then in interviews, people started calling me the bad feminist. (laughs) So what started as a bit of an inside joke with myself and a willful provocation has become a thing. Roxanne Gay is a New York Times bestselling author, an academic and a feminist. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and is the author of numerous books, essays, and columns and various other writings. She's held teaching positions at Purdue and Yale, to name a few. Much of her written work deals with the analysis and deconstruction of feminist and racial issues through the lens of her own personal experiences with race, gender equality, and sexuality. She is unabashed in her style and the themes that she covers. She's not afraid to point out her own imperfections as an impetus in her writing. She tackles her struggle with food, body weight, and the sexual trauma she experienced as a young girl. I really am in awe of Roxanne for her bravery and conviction because she deals with some of the most hateful vitriol the internet has to offer up. This is a story of overcoming trauma to find your voice, but more importantly, your identity. I am so excited you all get to listen to Roxanne Gay's Brown. First and foremost, um, the most topical news for me is congratulations. You got married uh, in August to your partner. I did. Uh, small ceremony. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, our wedding was planned for 10, 10, 20, which was so great. And <laughs> COVID happened and there was no way we were going to be able to get 400 people into any space in any kind of ethical way. And it's also not allowed. And so we decided to elope and postpone the wedding until next year. And so we did. We went to a strip mall or an office park in Encino <laughs> and uh, went to uh, instantmarriagela.com. <laughs> and wait, 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 married. wait. Encino, California? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. Where do you live? Los Angeles. Oh, honey, I, why was I under the impression that you lived back east? I'm so, because maybe because you taught at Yale and Yeah, so and- my wife is a New Yorker. And we go back and forth, but I'm basically, I'm headquartered here, so to speak, and she's headquartered in New York. Uh, But no, I live in LA. Okay, me too. We're neighbors. Yeah. Where do you live in LA? Uh, I live in Sherman Oaks. Where do you live? I live in Westchester by the airport. Oh, yeah. Perfect. That's literally where I spend most of my time. So yeah. I should probably move from You should. Now. It's so great. It's like Inglewood adjacent. So I see black uh-huh. people every day. It's great. I, oof, it's a beautiful thing. Isn't it, it is. Um, so let's begin. Um, I want to talk to you about and I, I got to be honest, so I think as far as an academic, you're the first that we've had on the sh- on the podcast. So that is always special for me. Uh, talk to me about where you grew up and and your your upbringing, if you will, in terms of your your nucleus. I am from Omaha, Nebraska, 
and I grew up in West Omaha. And then my dad is an engineer. And so he builds tunnels and we would go to wherever a tunnel needed to be built and stay there for one or two years and then move back to Omaha. So I've lived all over the place and my parents are Haitian. So I'm a first generation kid. And there is, believe it or not, a very tiny Haitian community in Omaha. And there's certainly a, a Black community. People assume that there isn't, but there is. And so, you know, I had a reasonably good childhood. And a lot of the things that you would assume about being Black in an all-white environment, I didn't realize were happening until much later. And so my parents did a really good job of sheltering us from a lot of the realities of racism. But, you know, also in Nebraska, people are extremely uh, passive aggressive. So they're not going to be like wearing a Klan robe, which mm -hmm. I don't know if that's better or not. <laughs> I kind of prefer when people show me who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's interesting that you say that because I believe right now, or especially um, the state of affairs that we're in, people are very honest to show you who they are mm -hmm. in, in certain ways. Um, but I also find it a bit jarring, even though I know this country was built on racism and and, and segregation, it still is jarring to be so bold about it. Um, yeah. you, oh, your thoughts on on that, especially growing up in Omaha? You know, I think about segregation a lot because we love to think that segregation was a thing of the past and uh, part of the Jim Crow era. But frankly, I find this world to be extraordinarily segregated. Every place I spend time in, I notice that it's wildly segregated. L.A. is very diverse, but everybody lives in their own little pocket for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people love to act like the coast are beyond racism, but they're not. And Omaha is extraordinarily segregated. Most of the Black people live in North Omaha. And it deals with a lot of the issues you might expect when there's no investment in infrastructure. And um, there is a history in this country of segregating people by way of geography and putting people um, in inaccessible places and then making it extraordinarily hard for them to get out. And that was certainly at play in Omaha. We lived in the suburbs because we were lucky and because we were middle class and because my parents, I think, were immigrants and didn't even understand how American segregation works at the time. They grew to understand it, but I don't think when they first started that they did. Do you, as writing comes for you, um, as you write so eloquently about all of the issues that we we face, um, the marginalized, the others, if you will, the otherness, that's the greatness of who we are, the mm -hmm. otherness. Did that come natural for you? Um, were you writing as a kid in Omaha? I was. I've always written. Uh, I've been writing since I was four years old. And my parents didn't necessarily understand what I was doing, but they encouraged it. They got me my first typewriter, took me to the library. And so it was exciting to be able to make things up and to tell little stories. And, you know, I was writing what you would expect a four-year-old to write. <laughs> and then <laughs> I developed as I got older. And um, as I read books that I loved, I just thought, I want to make people feel the way I feel when I read Little House on the Prairie. And so that's what I try to do. Well, how did... How did you feel about Little House on the Prairie? What did you feel? I loved it. I know it's a problematic text, 
but it was a different time. <laughs> but why? I Because I want to talk about that mm-hmm. for a second. It was problematic if you yeah. look back on it. But why? Why was it so, I don't know, peaceful then? Uh, There's a sense of serenity. You know, I think cultural norms change. And the realities of what Native Americans were put through never changed. I, but our mm-hmm. understanding of and our our attempt at reparations, which are um, long time coming and not yet where they need to be, um, have changed. And so we can look now at Little House on the Prairie and realize that Caroline Ingalls was fucking racist. My God. <laughs> like, lady, you have real problems. Um, you remember the episode when Todd Bridges yeah. said he didn't want to be black? Do you Absolutely. remember that episode? And then people started, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it now and I'm all like, damn, were we watching that? I yeah. mean, people showed that clip today and I'm shocked by it. You know, I think, I don't believe in justifying nonsense. I, I don't think that there was a black person that worked on that show other than the actors. Like that, bless that woman who played Hester Sue. Year, year like. in and year out. Like just, <laughs> I don't judge any Black actor in history because mm-hmm. I know that they were doing what they could and they were yeah. working under untenable circumstances. But that said, especially in the TV show, it was a mess. And I think they thought they were doing something good. I think they were trying to unpack racism mm-hmm. in their own sad little way, but it didn't work. And now we have to reckon with these books and these TV shows as cultural artifacts. And I think we have to recognize them as products of their time, but that doesn't make it okay. I think we can still critique them. So I still love Little House on the Prairie, but I don't value my feelings about it over the necessary critiques the books demand. And yeah, amen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. I, now when I reread them, I'm just like, oh, wow. but but you just said something that was powerful which leads me to more of your writing Mm -hmm. um there are cultural norms that are in place that are okay and this is a huge question why is that why is it okay were there always those trailblazers were there were there roxanne gays to write about the wrongs to identify what wasn't wasn't correct yet they just didn't have a place or a platform Like, why was it okay, and then it all of a sudden became not okay? Well, I think it's more a question of who it was okay with and who said Mm. it was okay. And it's about power. And so as long as the dominant culture gets to make the rules, then it's going to be okay. What we're seeing now is that they're losing their power. And that's why they're being so extraordinary and, and so extra about, for example, conceding the election. Because they know this is it. This is like the last gasp, but it's a hell of a gasp. And, you know, the balance of power as it shifts, we then have space to really critique things that were a mess and that are still a mess. And the the books were bad back then. And I, and I, I suspect that Native Americans were like, this is a problem. And nobody listened because mm-hmm. people valued their feelings and and that their nostalgia for the books over anything else. And we still see that. Uh, and what I like to say, though, is I, I think people tend to pick on Laura Ingalls Wilder more than they pick on literally the hundreds and hundreds of white men who wrote equally or more problematic texts. So mm. let's not just isolate the woman. Let, like mm. they, they all need to be critiqued. And thank goodness that we are developing a language for that kind of critique now to really say that homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, uh, racism, and 
other, you know, forms of bigotry are unacceptable. How did you develop or determine your writing style based off life experiences? I, I assume, but there comes a time when you say, this is my voice and it's speaking for a group of people, if not a, a, a norm that needs to be accepted. I think just time and maturity and reading and learning helped me develop my voice. The thing about writing, and I've said this before, is that it's like a muscle and you have to exercise it. And, you know, a lot of people say, how did you find your voice? And I, and I don't think it's a question of finding your voice. It's a question of allowing yourself to use it and then developing that voice. And so I just developed the voice by using it and really asking myself, what do I think about this? No, really, what do I think? And giving myself the space to really unpack those questions about like, what do I think and why do I think it? And what do I know about this topic? And what do I not know? What do I need to know? Uh, And I think that sort of bringing that kind of rigor to, to my writing always and always taking myself seriously as a writer, even when I was like a kid, I was like, I really took my shit seriously. I think that all contributed (laughs) to making me the writer I am today. I, I have this running joke and I think it's like, and I, you can tell me if it's right or wrong, but I think of writers in general, they, they, you know, uh, Erica Badu, mm-hmm. I'm sensitive about my shit. Mm-hmm. Like it makes me laugh because every time I interact with the writer, whether it be, you know, in Hollywood, if you will, mm-hmm. or in this, in this, it's a very sensitive, personal um, manifesto, if you will. And, and, and it's hard to tell a writer what is right and what is wrong because it's what they are feeling. Correct. Yes. And no. Um, it depends on the kind of writing that you do. So some of my writing is absolutely grounded in the personal and is, is based in memoir. And so when people critique it, it feels like they're critiquing you and your life choices. <laughs> and they are. And so there is going to be an increased sensitivity. But I'm a professional and I do this for a living now. And so critique is inherently part of the process. And I think that even if you're going to feel your feelings initially when you hear a critique, you then have to mm-hmm. examine which parts of this critique are valid and which parts of this critique are going to help me grow. And so once I get through my feelings, which I absolutely feel, that's when I really sit down and ask myself what I can take forward and um, try and hopefully do better. And sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you look back on it and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, not even play a game. I'm going to list some of your works. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if you were in a certain frame of mind for each for each book mm-hmm. or each, you know, your book of essays or your published work of essays. So when when I say an untamed state, which was your first, I believe, how did you feel? Oh, um, I that Where was my at? that was my well, that was my second book, but my first novel, my first book was on a micro press and they were like original print one was 120. 125 copies. Nobody read it. Oh, great. That's an original. It is. It is. Uh, It was eventually reprinted. But at the time I was like, oh, my God, I have a book. And (laughs) so when An Untamed State came out, I was so excited because it had been a long time coming. It took um, about 18 months to sell the book. People Mm -hmm. were very resistant to it because it's dark and violent and um it's challenging. And so um, I felt really great about it because I didn't think I could write a novel. And so I told myself, I'm just going to write 99 small little chapters and connect them. 
And that's not the number that ended up being in the book, but that's how I did it. I just did it sort of one piece at a time and then I put it all together. And so I just knew I did the best I could with the skill set I had at that time. And that's how I look at all of my past writing. I'm not ashamed of a single thing I've ever written um, because that was the best I could do at that time. Bad Feminist, what mind state were you in for that? Well, Bad Feminist ended up, was a collection of writing that had been in the world for years. And so with Bad Feminist, I actually thought, oh, nobody's going to read this book, so it doesn't matter. And I thought Mm. no one was going to read it because you can just print it out. (laughs) Like all of those essays were already online. We like things easy. Mm -hmm. New York Times bestseller. I found that out. I found that out. (laughs) People like, that is the book that has surprised me the most because people still read that shit and they still buy it. It still sells. Like I live on Bad Feminist and it's all right. Uh, So I'm really, I, I was, I was actually not, I was just like, whatever, you know, it's just a collection (laughs) of things I already wrote. And so I was really, it's not that I was confident. I, I was confident no one was going to read it. So I was safe. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, so when you look back at those collection of essays, Mm -hmm. how would you describe who you were as a writer, as a woman, um, as you know, and and people are always so quick to label you Mm -hmm. bisexual, gay, Mm -hmm. whatever they want to be. How, where were you in that state? You know, I was the same person I am now, but I was just really developing my voice. That's when I first had the confidence to th- to think I could share my opinions. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first had the confidence to use my identity as a source of wealth and not as a liability. So mm-hmm. I have a sp- I have a specific perspective as a black queer woman, as a fat woman. And you know what? I have as right as I have as much right as anyone else to share this perspective. And so that's where I was. And I certainly was nervous, but I I still just did it anyway, which is what I always do. I, I tend to be very nervous and I just allow myself to do what I need to do anyway. What do you when you think about what you just said, what do you contribute your success to? Your ability to talk about life as a woman who is queer, who who you, who may not be, you know, what they consider the typical size. You're a woman who is very, and I believe it appears to be comfortable in your own skin. Do you attribute your success to that? Partly, but, you know, I, I don't know that I'm comfortable in my own skin. Oh. I know that I believe I have a right to be comfortable in my own skin. And so I lead with that in my work. And I sort of, I'm faking it till I make it. (laughs) And I also do tell myself, I genuinely, to this day, even though it's getting harder to do, I genuinely tell myself, no one's going to read my work. So whatever happens is fine. And, um, why do you tell yourself that? uh, Because it's challenging to put personal things into the world and not know how they're going to be received and to know that there are going to be people who engage with the work disingenuously, who do so from a place of cruelty, who do so from a place of hate reading, because I'm an acquired taste. People don't like me and that's okay. Um, Welcome to my world. Yeah. You know, like, it's okay. <laughs> like whatever. Um, yeah. And so I just try to balance wild insecurity with wild overconfidence <laughs> and land somewhere, hopefully in the middle. 
You try to balance wild insecurity over wild with wild confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an armor that a lot of people develop, marginalized black and brown people develop uh, when they're in rarefied air. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you say that and you're you're admitting what you feel. For those who are listening, who, I mean, God, just everybody who have the same insecurities, who feel like they don't deserve, but know they do, who, who deal with self-doubt. Um, what are some of your, your how-tos, your overcome that that issue, your here is your brown print in order to push through those tough times. Boundaries. I have very firm boundaries over what I will and will not put into the world so that even though it can be painful when people engage with the work in negative ways or when they critique it in productive but challenging ways, that they're critiquing things I can handle them critiquing because I've I've made my peace with it and I've put that boundary out there. Uh, I also surround myself with a great support system. I have really great friends. I have really great editors. I have a great agent. I have a great lawyer. Um, You know, when you have a really great group of people around you, both professionally and personally, it makes it a lot easier to take risks because you know that there are people who have your back. And I also just work really hard. I, um, I work really hard. I work too much probably. And So I know that I'm not leaving anything behind. I put my whole heart into everything I do. And that allows me, even when I fall short, to not have any regrets about it because Mm. I I went for it. And, you know, it's not always going to work out. And that's challenging. It's hard to like reconcile that, but I, I do my best. When you say fall short, mm-hmm. is it by your standards or by the world's standards? It can be both. Uh, I have unreasonably high standards or expectations of myself. So I'm working on that in therapy. I know it's not like <laughs> rational, <laughs> but also I sometimes feel like, you know, there are times when I make missteps, when I disappoint my following for lack of a better word. And I try to hold myself accountable and I try to never make the same mistake twice. Gosh, you are a tough cookie. Let me tell you <laughs> something. That is why you are successful. I'm listening to you. I hear nothing but discipline and and continued uh, effort to be successful by your own terms. Mm-hmm. And I think of what you talk about in such a vulnerable way, um, body issues, yes. um, negative images, rape, sexual abuse. When you say there are people who don't like your work, mm-hmm. On the outside looking in, I think you speak for those for so many people. So who are those that don't like it? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you're like the list goes on. (laughs) It started with no. Um, So there are people who just don't like me and they try to veil not liking me in nonsense and call it critique. And that's fine. I'm like, but I just wish they would be man or woman enough to just be like, I don't like you. It's okay. You don't have to like me. Um, but they're worried about how they might be perceived if they say they don't like me. And that's weird. Like, just say you don't like me because I don't like you either. It's fine. Um, there are people who critique me for what they say are um, issues of class insensitivity. And what is that? What is like, what is that? I grew up middle class. 
And um, I, they think that I have some blind spots when it comes to issues of class. Um, and I think there's some validity there, but not in the ways they think. They think it's coming from a place of sort of like wild ignorance, but you know, you don't know what you don't know until someone points it out to you and you don't know what your blind spots are. But the thing that they've latched onto, it's wild, is that, and I wrote about this in um, Hunger, my parents paid my rent until I turned 30 years old. And oh. so there's a group of people that really latched on to this as some sort of like moral failing on my part. But it was Lincoln, Nebraska, and my rent was $385. And, (laughs) you know, I get that that's a privilege that that happened. But, like, I wasn't living in a Manhattan loft. You know, I don't have a trust fund. I, You know, I'm not who they think I am simply because I had access to certain things. Mm. Um, You know, and so I, I try to take the critiques and try to do better each time. But so many of the people like will latch on to a tweet that was a joke Bummer. and treat it as if like I made a joke many years ago about I'm, I'm not even going to say it because I don't want it to come back up. But I made this joke <laughs> and it really was a joke, but they perceived it as me not joking and like as a thing. And it, it has followed me ever since. And so there are these things, these people that latch on to missteps or lapses in judgment and then treat them as if everything I do is unworthy and everything I do is a failing instead of just saying, okay, you made this mistake. Here's why it was a mistake. And Mm -hmm. I recognize that this doesn't mean you're, um, you know, totally evil and corrupt person. (laughs) (laughs) Like there seems to be like no nuance there. Well, yeah. And then by the way, Twitter, social media is not the place for nuance, Mm -mm, right? But mm -mm. that I think that what it goes to what you said earlier. This is the reason that allows the people not to like you. They're looking for a reason, and then you give them one little reason or one what they pre- would perceive as a reason, and then they hold on to it. So they have already made up their mind who they think you are or what you who you belong to. And by the way, if my parents could pay my rent until I was thirty, I I wouldn't be in so much damn debt. It took me forever right? to pay my debt off. And the so, thing is, like, like I ain't mad. while that was happening, I also was accruing one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in student loans. Yeah, exactly. you know what I mean. They, like, yeah, no, there's like it's, there's more to the story. <laughs> and also, I'm so grateful to them. I'm just so grateful yeah. to them because yeah. they made graduate school. They made me. They made finishing my undergrad degree possible because I had taken some time off. They made graduate school my master's degree possible. And then by the time I got my PhD, I was self-sufficient, thank God, as I should have been. But I could have been self-sufficient all along. And I was. I always were. I've worked. I've had jobs since I was 13. I'm Haitian. Listen, I'm going to work. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. Come on. Um, yeah. So I've always worked. And um, I, I'm trying to get better about all of the blind spots. And I but I, and I also always acknowledge my privilege. That's another thing I do in my work. I always acknowledge my subject position and where I'm coming from and why. But you also acknowledge your trauma. Oh, for sure. You have to be able to like these things can coexist. Like, yes, I grew up in the suburbs, but then I was gang raped. So like I've known struggle and also my parents are Haitian and they grew up in abject poverty. I know what poverty is. I know what absolute poverty is. And like, you know, go to Port-au-Prince and, and see the conditions so many people are living in and then come back here and like talk to me um, from your iPhone. Like, stop. 
what do you, I'm just thinking of all the different things um, that you have, have written about and how I, I believe it's cathartic for a community. What do you ultimately want your legacy to be? If someone is, I mean, because I know that artists, I consider myself an artist, we're much mm-hmm. more sensitive than we, than we realize. And there are, there's a community cheering us on because we're, we're using our voice to speak their language. Mm-hmm. What do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy to not be about me or my work, but I want my legacy to be the spaces that I shared, opened up and created for other black women to thrive in that, that it will be my legacy. Um, and just helping underrepresented writers be able to put their ideas and work into the world and to increase our representation as a whole. When you or someone's listening now and they are in the queer community, mm-hmm. um, they are in a community that has body issues, which is every woman I know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, sexually uh, abused, raped, domestic violence, the, you know, any type of violence against the body. And they're listening to you and they've read your work and they know how incredibly painful it is. What is your hope for them in terms of where would you like to see that healing? Where would you like to see healing for them? I wish everyone had access to affordable therapy because therapy Mm. goes a long way. And, you know, a lot of times people say, you know, get therapy, but it's not that simple. First of all, you have to have the money and then you have to have the time and then you have to be able to work through whatever like Haitian culture is not really open to therapy. And so every time I mentioned to my mom, oh, I have to go because I have therapy. She's like, are you going to talk about me again? And I'm like, <laughs> like, wow, first of all, first oh, of all, no. Oh my um, God. And so you have to be able to work through all of sort of the cultural issues you might have when it comes to accessing therapy. Uh, but also I think it's important for people because so that's not always an option. I think it's important for people to recognize that it's okay to acknowledge your experiences and your pain. There's no shame in it. And mm. I think it's healthy for people to share their traumas. I mean, I think that, yeah, I do. I do think it's healthy. I don't think you like you do it everywhere, but I think there's a time and a place where if you have a truth, then you should speak it. And I, I kept my trauma to myself for a very long time. And it was only to my detriment and it only harmed me more. And I wish I had known as a child that I should have and could have told someone, anyone about what had happened to me um, because I would have saved myself a lot of harm. And so I hope that more people feel encouraged to share their stories whether it's anonymously with strangers on the internet or with a loved one or a best friend or a family, just unburden yourself. You do not have to carry it alone. That was beautiful. Uh, There is a world in which we think that we have to though, because we don't feel safe Mm -hmm. sharing, right? That's, I think the, the big thing is not feeling safe to share. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you, now, looking back at a young Roxanne and 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 now a, a developed professional uh, New York Times bestseller Roxanne Gay, <laughs> how would you um, describe yourself, your journey, if you will? And this will be my last question. Um, how would I describe my journey? You know, I, in many ways, my journey has been a very long walk up a 
a never ending hill, but it's manageable. And um, the longer I climb up this hill, the stronger I get. The longer you climb up the hill, Mm -hmm. the stronger you get. Yes. The hill of life. The hill of life. The hill hill of the hill of coming into myself, the hill of um, accepting myself, which is an ongoing like that's why it's always like moving up a hill. It's an ongoing project. Uh, You know, I still like most people, especially most women, uh, you know, I struggle to like make peace with my body and to feel safe and happy and confident in my body. And so it's an ongoing thing, you know, with my career, I'm ambitious. So I'm always moving the goalposts. And so it's moving uphill in terms of my career in my personal life. You know, I do a lot of work in therapy on becoming stronger and learning better tools for coping with life and and history and family and relationship, uh, which is not something that really requires coping, but, you know, I want to be the best person I can be for my partner. And so that requires work. And that's, so that's also always uphill, but I just never stop climbing. I never, for whatever reason, I'm relentless. I just keep going even when I don't want to. Amen. Well, that was beautiful. Like <laughs> that you could not have said it even more better. Just even when you don't want to, you keep climbing. <laughs> yes. That's, that is a special intestinal fortitude that everyone doesn't have. And that is my dear, why you are where you are today in spite of, right? Thank you, Carrie. I try. Um, Yeah, I think so. I do think that that's why I'm here. Like, it's just sheer persistence. Mm. That's it. You have encouraged me today. You are such a pleasure, Roxanne. And I didn't know you were in LA. This is nice to know. I'm gonna have to get your email. But you know, when we all can go back outside. That would be awesome. Roxanne Gay, New York Times bestselling author, activist, academic, and feminist. Um, She was very powerful, and I appreciate her vulnerability and, more importantly, her candor. She talked about several things that I consider gems, but some of my biggest takeaways. uh, Self-acceptance is a constant battle. Negative body issues, her sexuality. um, She continues to keep pushing and being herself in spite of all of those little demons that might try to talk to you and tell you that you're not good enough. Uh, She used the term balancing insecurity versus wild overconfidence. And to me, that is a beautiful way to describe what it means to learn to have self-acceptance. Another takeaway, it's healthy to share your trauma. In her case, it could be gang rape when she was a kid in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, In your case, it could be just accepting who you are, but it is healthy to share your trauma. And for me, that was major because so many of us have been taught to hide our abuse, to hide our scary moments, to give power to secrets. Um, And she has done just the opposite with her writing. She shares her trauma and she realizes that it's healthy. And I think that is such a positive message to share. Uh, And last but not least, when I asked her what she wanted her legacy to be, her legacy, quite frankly, is to make sure that she's holding the door open for other women, for other African-American women, for other queer women who want to be in a space where they can share their true stories and share their ability to battle with self-acceptance. Roxanne Gay, what a pleasure. Hope you guys enjoyed this edition of The Brown Press. 
That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Ha <laughs> ha. Kidding. Kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.